Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that the Steroid to CEO podcast has joined forces with Future Commerce, the number one podcast in e-commerce. We're combining forces to bring you the most insightful and relevant content in the world of tech and entrepreneurship. We're launching new content every week starting in July, and I don't want you to miss it. So subscribe to Steroid to CEO right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and let's take your business to the next level. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 12 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and we've got a great episode for you with Talia Goldstein, the founder and CEO of 3-Day Rule. 3-Day Rule is a popular matchmaking service that helps singles take charge of their dating. Instead of swiping left or right on numerous apps, 3-Day Rule has matchmakers that do all the work for you. In this episode, Talia shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from playing varsity sports and running for class president to quitting her job in TV at E! Entertainment to start her own business. She talks with us about her experience in raising capital for her company while pregnant, not just once, but twice, and how she inherited the CEO seat from her former co-founder. She describes her obsession for matchmaking and even gives us dating advice for finding true love, as well as business lessons she's learned along the way. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to hear your story. Where are you from originally? I'm from Irvine, California. Irvine. Awesome. And so how long did you live in California? Well, I live, I've lived in California my whole life, except I went to college in New Orleans. I went to Tulane University. So I grew up in Irvine, went to college and then moved to LA. Cool. And so what was childhood like for you? What were, what did your parents do? Did you have siblings? My dad is a doctor and my mom is a social worker and I'm the oldest of three. So I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And I would say it was pretty picturesque. I grew up in Irvine. It's practically a bubble. So I was into soccer and track and tennis and leadership. And I pretty much did everything. And I feel like I grew up in a pretty safe environment. Yeah. So, um, what did you say your mom did? She was a social worker. Okay. Awesome. And, um, what was it like being the oldest of two, Hmm. (laughs) two younger siblings? We are all so different. It's pretty interesting. I went to public school. My brother went to boarding school. My sister went to private school. Oh, wow. And we just all have such different personalities. So I think in many ways we had different experiences, but I was always the social one. So I was okay at public school. I was school president and I was always willing to run for office and lose and try again. Why? Why do you think you were like that? I think it's just sort of innate. I, I love the idea of being in the leadership council and I really tried hard And there were so many years where I lost. And I actually started that in elementary school. I remember I was in fourth grade Mm -hmm. and I beat a sixth grader for treasurer. And after that, I was kind of hooked and I worked really hard to land these positions. But when I lost, I didn't let it get me too down. Yeah. Because you just kind of peeled yourself back up and were like, let's try this again. I'll do it again next year. Exactly. I sort of have this fighter mentality that I've always had as a kid. I've never been the best at anything. So I had to work extremely hard to make varsity tennis and Mm -hmm. to make varsity soccer where everybody else sort of had that talent. I had to try three times as hard. And I think that started at a young age and is really helpful today as an entrepreneur. Definitely. What do you think is that earliest memory you have of um, being that fighter? Like when was the earliest time Mm -hmm. when you had to fight for something? Do you remember? I think just trying to make varsity tennis. Mm -hmm. We had a really strong team. 
And I knew if I was going to make varsity, I had to work after school hours and hours and hours. And every camp that I did was tennis all day long. And I just had to work so much harder than everybody else to make it. And I made it. I think I was a sophomore, which was actually a big deal. And I was so proud of myself. And so what did you do? You just kind of um, planned time, like you carved out time after school and you just kind of created your own schedule to... Exactly. All the weekends and after school, I did tennis, soccer, track. I just worked so hard. I was really rarely home. But as from a young age, I always could create a vision for myself. Mm -hmm. And I had this sort of inner fire. I'm going to get there. Mm -hmm. What it takes, I'm going to make that team. And... I think that is just part of my personality. Did your parents kind of support you in that? Were they like pushing you to be on varsity or was that kind of your own choice? It was definitely my own choice. My parents as a kid, they called me the accidental tourist. I don't even know what that really even means, (laughs) but I was like a tourist in my own home because I was never there. I always had so many extracurricular activities that I very rarely was sitting at home. And I, I still have that where I have to be doing something all the time. Yeah. So you went to high school, you were in varsity tennis, you um, were always running for some type of treasurer political um, position. So what was college like for you? It was pretty eye-opening. Actually, I came to college and I ran for freshman president and I lost. Of course you did. (laughs) Oh no, you lost. I lost. And I really remember specifically what somebody said to me. I was walking around in kind of like a fancy dress and passing out my cards. And somebody came up and said, right now you're acting like you're better than everybody else. You need to adapt and be like everyone else. And it was pretty eye-opening. And actually the person who won was like that, you know. Um, So I kind of had to switch my strategy once I went to college. But I think in the end, it ended up working out. That's funny that someone said that to you. <laughs> I, I, so I got all dolled up and I curled my hair and I was wearing a cute dress. I'm like, that's not what you need to do here to win. Right. And it was, a, in general, eye-opening. I, I came from Irvine, which is basically a bubble. And I wanted to go somewhere really different. So New Orleans was that. I mean, I really had to adapt. There were very few people from California. It was a very East Coast school. And New Orleans is obviously so different from Irvine. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity to get out and see the world a little bit. I studied abroad as well in Spain my junior year, and then I came right back to LA. That's awesome. And so did you have any jobs while you were in college or internships? Well, I've always had jobs growing up, and that was also something that my parents never asked me to do or told me to do, but I really wanted to make money for myself. So I worked at a frozen yogurt shop. I was a waitress. I did a lot of volunteering in college, but I didn't have a, a job in college. I had two internships over the summers in college. I moved to New York and I worked for Ford Models. Oh, no way. <laughs> that was funny. So what were you doing with them? Experience. <laughs> I, I was basically one of their assistants, but they gave me all these really interesting jobs mm-hmm. that I was not qualified for at all. So for example... I was in charge of, I forget what they're called, like casting calls, basically, yeah. where they would have all these people who were interested in becoming models show up. Yep. And I had to tell them whether or not what they were going to make this? it. I'm wondering if I was like in that line. Actually, oh my God. Because I used to model. <laughs> oh, that is. Or, and I actually funny. interned at an agency, I think it was like 2005 before I ended up signing. And no one really knows this part of the story, but I ended up interning for, I think it was called Karen Models at the time. It's now called MC Squared. Oh, interesting. Sounds familiar. Yeah. What year was that that you were okay, interning at Ford? <clears throat> 2000. Okay. Yeah. So I interned at Ford Models and then I interned at a music PR company. It was called Susan Blonde Inc. in New York. Wow. Interesting. What did you do for them? Just sort of the same kind of assistant work, but I loved it. I was so eager. I remember every hour on the hour running up to the publicist and ask, is there anything you need? I'm so happy to go grab you coffee. I'll run out to the dry cleaners, anything. I was so excited to work. It was a blast. Yeah. I mean, New York City in the summer for interning is so fun. It's so... I feel like everyone needs to do that. You have to get an internship in New York City while you're in school. I agree. Yeah. It was was fascinating, especially Ford models. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you got a great insider inside look on that. That's funny. So that was what year was that? That was 2000 and then 2001. Were you a junior at that time? Mm -hmm. Okay. So then you graduate. What did you, what was your major? I majored in communications and Spanish. Okay, cool. Just pretty random. <laughs> I studied abroad in high school in Costa Rica and then in college in Spain. And I minored in Spanish and I cannot speak any Spanish anymore. <laughs> it's all gone. Yeah. It's pretty easy to lose a language right when you're never using it. I know. I studied French for so long and I, so I struggle all the time to try to remember. It's such a bummer. Yeah. But I studied communications and what I really wanted to do was come out to LA and become a publicist. Really? <clears throat> so that was your, when did you know that's what you wanted to do? I realized that in college, I really liked that idea. And when I came out to LA, I interviewed at some of the bigger companies like BWR. And in the interviews, I remember them asking me, do you care what toothpaste Adam Sandler uses? I said, no, not what? at all. That is a crazy question. That's a trick question, right? It was pretty much a tr trick question. They said, this isn't for you. If you do not live and breathe these celebrities and what they like to do and what they like to wear, this isn't for you. What? And so I realized pretty quickly that I was not meant to be a celebrity publicist. <laughs> because I just don't care about their toothpaste. <laughs> right. At all. Or really or anything else. <laughs> That's funny. So then were you like, okay, maybe this publicist stuff is not for me? Or what did you do? So then I w at the time I was living in Hermosa Beach with four people. And one of them worked in advertising at TBWA Shiat Day. And he said there was an opening for an account group assistant on the Nissan account. I said, well, I don't know a thing about cars, but I'll go and interview. So I interviewed. And then they asked me to come back and asked me to come back. And all of a sudden, it was five or six interviews later, and I get the job. I thought, well, I've already interviewed six times. I might as well just take this job, even right. though I never set out to be in advertising. And I really couldn't care less about cars. So I ended up taking the job. And I worked there about 10 months. I really loved the people. I learned so much, but it was pretty apparent that cars were not something that I was passionate about. But at the time I realized I was really passionate about music. And somebody at the office had a friend who worked at VH1 behind the music. Oh, cool. So I ended up leaving Shia Day and I went to work on behind the music. Awesome. And then how was that experience? <laughs> was that a lot better than cars? Definitely. I was, I was, so excited about it. I, again, loved my team. But right when I started, the person that I was working for ended up leaving to start his own production company. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the choice to stay and work at VH1 or to follow him to his new company. And while I only had worked there for maybe six months, I felt loyal. And so I ended up leaving and going to work at this other production company with him. Mm-hmm. So I worked with him and I did a lot of documentaries, really interesting ones. Like we followed National Guardsmen going to Iraq for the first time. Uh, we did shows for CMT, Country Music Television. And then I ended up leaving there a few years later to work at E! True Hollywood Story. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. So going back to that, you know, kind of crossroad of either stay at VH1 or go, do you think you made the right choice? The people who stayed are now running VH1. So if I really wanted to be a television producer, it probably would have been the right move. But ultimately, it, again, wasn't something that I was so passionate about. Mm -hmm. So... I adore my old boss and I think I did make the right move. Yeah. So now you're at E! True Hollywood Story. Yeah. <laughs> and how's that experience? I loved it. It was great. So I focused more on the music documentary shows. So Amy Winehouse and Brett Michaels. And I was given this opportunity to interview really interesting artists. Mm -hmm. And part of my job was to get footage of them 
in their younger years. So I really loved that. But more so, I really liked the people that I worked with. And while I was at E, I recognized that I had this weird hidden talent in setting people up. So I took all my coworkers and my friends and I started pairing people up together in my free time. It was just like a fun project for me. How did you realize that that was something you enjoy doing? Um, well, while I was at E, I basically was the resident dating expert. We all had to work from the office all day. You know, we had to sit in our cubicles and do our work. And so people needed a break and they would come to my cubicle and they'd say, I'm on match.com. This is what's going on. I said, girlfriend, let me give you some advice. And I think people recognize that my advice is pretty useful. And what was your advice? I think for the most part, it was like, be yourself, be proactive, you know, probably the same stuff that I say today, but people started to get into relationships. And then I was sort of known as this resident dating expert. So I managed to match many people on my true Hollywood story team. And then all of a sudden G4, they were in the same building and style was in the same building. And so those employees were coming by my cubicle every day asking for advice. So I began to host events around town with my coworkers and my single friends. And the first one had about 30 people. It was at a bar in Santa Monica called South. Mm -hmm. And the next month we had 300 people at the Viceroy. And a couple months later, 600 people at the London. People were hearing about the events and bringing 10 friends and those people would bring 10 more. And all of a sudden these little singles events were blowing up. Wow. So it was really at one of these events at the London where I sort of took a step back and realized that there are all these people who are attractive and successful and interesting, and they were all having a tough time dating. Right. So I decided to take a huge leap of faith and I quit my job in television and I started this tiny matchmaking company. Yeah, that's crazy. So you kind of proved the concept through the events that you're hosting. Right. And while I was working at E, I took on a couple clients at night just to sort of test it out. Mm -hmm. I remember I met this guy at a bar and he was complaining about his love life. And I said, okay, let's do a test. I'll take you on as a matchmaking client, bring me $250 in cash Mm -hmm. to Starbucks and let's do this. And he really enjoyed the experience. So then I took on another client and I charged them $500. What was the experience that you were offering? I was basically doing the dating for them. So I would find out what he was looking for. Then I would go to all my friends and people that I had recently met and you know, figured out if there was anybody that I had in my pool that matched what he was looking for. I would set them up on a date. I'd get feedback from both sides and I would help him along the way become a better dater. And what does that mean? Because I, I think that's really interesting. I think better dater. What does that mean? So many things. In the real world, you get ghosted and you don't know why. Right. In my world, I get to understand what is going on on the dates. And oftentimes it's these tiny tweaks that make a huge difference. So for example, I found with one of my clients, every time he was going on the date, the girl would say, he's hard to read. I really liked him. He was hard to read. Mm. And what I found out was at the end of the date, he was shaking the girl's hands. That was it? That was it. That's why he was hard to read? Exactly. So it's funny. That one change made a huge difference. And a lot of times I'm also bridging the gap between two people who liked each other, but didn't know. So they would go on the date and without me, they would never see each other again because the other person didn't think, you know, the other person was they interested. They didn't text back soon enough or... exactly. And so I'm saying, actually, she really liked you. You should ask her out again. So Mm. I would say half my job is bridging the gap between people who actually like each other and don't know. And and the other half is really helping people become their best dating selves. Interesting. And best dating selves means making sure you don't shake their hand. Right. It means being (laughs) the best version of you. You know, Mm -hmm. over time, we become a little more guarded and we're not letting people really see who we truly are. Mm -hmm. We accumulate baggage. Mm-hmm. So we're telling too much on the first, second, third date. So it's kind of just tweaking it a little bit to show your best self on the first few dates. So you don't freak anyone out about all those right. horror stories you have from your past or how you don't trust anyone anymore. Exactly. <laughs> Especially these days because people are going on so many dates. Right. That we're being compared to so many people. Right. It's all at our fingertips now. Right. And yeah. if it's not perfect, you just swipe 
Again. Yep, exactly. It's funny. I met my uh, husband on Tinder. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> In the early days? Oh, yeah. Early days. And um, it's really true that that first date says so much about whether or not you're going to see that person again. Right. And people are looking for that spark. Yeah. You know, I really try to encourage people to embrace the slow burn. Right. It doesn't always have to have crazy sparks on the first mm-hmm. date, but that's what people are really hoping for. Yes. If your first date is all about your exes or your baggage, it's really hard to have that spark. Mm-hmm. So how do you create spark? Can you create spark or is it just something like you just said slow, right? But I definitely agree with you. A lot of people look for that spark. They're expecting this crazy fire to happen out of nowhere on a first date. And I think it's kind of like they're really looking for something too much. I mean, do you think so or what? Definitely. I think that romantic comedies have really ruined us. (laughs) Ruined us. (laughs) You know, we are expecting something that is really hard to find. Mm -hmm. So while every now and then you might be hit with this crazy spark, for the most part, it does take time. Yeah. It takes time to build a little bit more. But it's, you will have a much, uh, it will be much easier for you to form a spark on the first date if you are light and fun and you're talking about things that you truly care about, not interviewing the person on the date. Right. Looking to check boxes and judge every single thing that comes out of their mouth. Which is why matchmaking is such an incredible tool because we've already done that for you. Mm -hmm. I already know that your religion, you know, religion and politics and whether or not you want kids and Mm -hmm. what your family like, I know that lines up to what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get on the date, all you have to do is see if there's chemistry and try to have fun. Yeah. Chemistry, attraction, spark, it all kind of gets mixed up. How do you think about those things and are they the same? I think chemistry is a little bit different and grows over time. The great thing for women is it can grow on the fourth, fifth, or sixth date. For men, they know on the first date. So we rarely encourage guys to give it a second shot or a third shot because they typically know right away. But for women, it's so amazing that we have the luxury of going on a third, fourth, yeah. fifth date and having that chemistry grow. Yeah. That's so funny. I, I mean, it's really, my husband says to this day and the first day, as soon as I walked out of the door, he was like, you're it. Yeah. And it's like, I didn't even open my mouth to speak yet. Like, what are you talking <laughs> about? You know, they know. So funny. Yeah. It's crazy. Cool. So you had this idea because you were already like a matchmaker that everyone was going to. And so how did you come up with the name of your company? Well, it's from the movie Swingers, this old stupid rule that guys used to wait three days to call a girl after getting her phone number. And the truth is the company started as a blog Mm. and I would write some advice, but then I'd have men write advice to women and women write advice to men. It also was a city search for girls based on guy type. So girls would take a quiz and we would say, your type is the jock. Your type is the entrepreneur. Here are all the bars in LA that he goes to. I was trying to help women just go to the places where they have their guy types. Obviously the company evolved over time, but that's really how it started. Interesting. How did you start forming your team? You quit your job. How did you know actually when to take the leap and just quit your job and focus full time on your business? I think that's something a lot of people struggle with is that when do I make that jump? I knew it was time to take that leap once I had a handful of clients. And once I recognized that it was pretty easy to get clients, if I just met with somebody and I gave them the pitch, they were intrigued and they would sign up. Right. So I felt that if I was doing this full time, I would be able to cover the salary that I needed. So how, when I would imagine, you know, these people kind of coming to you and saying, you know, help me find true love and I want it in the next month, (laughs) you know, (laughs) do they put like deadlines on you or like, how do you work with them to... Like what's the timeline, I guess, on average? The timeline on average is six months. So it does take some time for me to learn about the person and also for the person to learn about themselves because Mm -hmm. I will say the majority of the time people come to us wanting X, Y, and Z, we match them with someone pretty different and they go on to get married. And that takes time. We don't figure that out Right. right away. We figure out for the last 20 years, here's been the list that you're looking for. Now we have to narrow that list to three things, five things that are truly going to matter in 20 years. So that takes time. And six months is really the appropriate amount of time. So they come to you with a laundry list of 
Yeah. <laughs> Men and women are so different. Almost every guy has a list of three things he's looking for. Right. And women have 75 things. Exactly. 75 must-haves. Must-haves. must have. Be six feet tall, have broad shoulders, perfect teeth, stable family. I mean, yep. it goes Great on sense of and style. On. Yeah. <laughs> so it's narrowing down that list to figure out really, truly what is going to matter in 20 years. Yeah. Is perfect teeth going to matter? If so, put that on your three, but it's probably not going to matter. It's probably someone who's loyal and supportive and right. caring that you can fix his teeth. You can fix exactly. his style. <laughs> That's funny. So you started this business and then you started, what were some of the first things that you did to get your company off the ground? At the time I had a business partner who was an attorney and she stayed at work while I got the matchmaking business up and running. But we had always dreamed of scaling it across the country and matchmaking is very hard to scale because we have to meet with everyone in person. Right. So we knew in order to scale, we had, we needed a tech element. So we applied to these incubators and at the time there were only a couple in LA and we ended up at the Founder Institute doing an incubator program. And that's kind of a long story. I don't know if, it, if you want to get into it. Sure. But, we can talk about okay. the incubators. <laughs> so we went into the incubator with three-day rule, the same. Which one was it? Founder Institute. Oh, right. Okay. And in this one, it's interesting. They start with about 50 people. And every week your peers can kick you out or the advisors can kick you out. So we started with 50 people and we graduated with eight. Oh, it wow. is like survivor style. But the first couple of weeks that we went into the program, the advisor said to us, the dating industry is so saturated, you should get out. Hmm. And here we were, we really cared about the dating industry. That's why we left our jobs to do it. But we knew that all of these other advisors have been doing this for years and years, and we should probably take their advice. We also wanted to graduate from the program. So while we were in there, we shut the company down. Oh my gosh. And we relaunched a new company that was bringing people together over networking events. <laughs> Sounds like the same thing. <laughs> Pretty similar, but without the love part that we actually cared about. So we graduated through the Founder Institute, and then actually we ended up launching a different company that brought strangers together over dinner. Mm. And we put our life savings in the t into this company and everybody said, such a great idea. There were a couple competitors on the market. We were working very hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were the, between the two of us, we were basically coming 24 hours a day. And six months in, we looked at ourselves and thought, is this what we want to do for the rest of our lives? Like, do we care so passionately about this, that this is going to be our life? We both decided no, even though the events were selling out and actually on the surface, it looked like a successful company. We were working so hard for something that we didn't truly care about. So we ended up closing that and relaunching three day roll. Wow. Interesting. So wow, what happened after that? You can, you're like closing, launching, closing, launching, closing, launching. Then we had another saga. We applied for Shark Tank. Really? And we were accepted. So we called a few of our investors. At the time, we had raised a small seed round to bring on a CTO. And one of the investors said, if you go on Shark Tank, I'm, I'm going to pull my money out. What? Why? Why would he say that? It was a new show at the time. And I think that he felt it was risky. We hadn't finished our product yet. Mm -hmm. so he said, it will be business suicide. You're going to go on. You're not going to have a product. And if you do that, I'm out. So, Isn't it good exposure though? I mean, I don't, I can't imagine. I think it was just so new at the time that he didn't have anything else sure. to go off yeah. of. So we politely turned it down. Oh my gosh. And we were pretty bummed about it. And a few months later, they called back and they said, we're filming tomorrow morning and we'd really like you on the show. Wow. By then our product was almost finished and we again looked at each other and we said, you know what? Screw it. Let's go on. Mm -hmm. Let's just see what happens. So we had to scramble, get all everything we needed for the table. You have to set up this whole table. Right. And my business partner went out and bought a dress and practiced for the pitch. And the next morning at 6 a.m., we showed up to Shark Tank. At that point, I was nine months pregnant. Wow. And at the last minute, I thought, I am not having a baby on national television. <laughs> This is too stressful for me. Oh my God. So I sent her out on her own. You sent who out on your own? I sent my former business partner out yeah. on her own. And she, 
I thought did a great job, but ultimately we didn't get funding. She was single at the time and they said, never trust a skinny chef and never trust a single matchmaker. Oh my God. <laughs> and meanwhile, I was backstage. I'm married and I'm super pregnant, but you can't see me. But the night that it aired, we had 10,000 people sign up and our investor never pulled out his money. So it was worth it. It worked out. Went on. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a really funny story. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in building a team? How many people are on your team right now, actually? Right now we have, a, uh, I think we just passed 50 employees. Awesome. I would say the number one reason we're even still alive today is our culture. I think it's the most important part of this business, especially because we're, we all work remotely. So we are on the ground in 10 different cities across the country and we all have to feel connected and feel like a family. So culture is something that we worked really hard on and we truly do feel like a family. So every Monday we do a call across the country with the entire team and we cover all of the success stories from the previous week. I think it's really important to celebrate the small successes. Mm -hmm. So we'll shout out last week, Nora made 18 matches. She had a client go on vacation together, a client that got engaged, you know, and everyone across the country is cheering for these matchmakers. We do a retreat once a year where we bring everybody together so they can learn from each other. Each employee gets a mentor. So we do a lot of things within the company to make everybody feel really close together. And we're really supportive. We built all these programs within the company that's made it so we all want to help each other out for no reason. We don't get paid extra to help each other out. It's just the culture that we've created. And I think it really goes a long way. Yeah. That's really tough to manage so many people that work remotely. So do you do anything else? The annual event sounds awesome. And the weekly check-ins, are there anything else? Like what else do you do to keep everybody together and motivated? Yeah. Well, once a quarter, I do one-on-ones with everyone. So sometimes it takes a full week to do it. But I, it's not mandatory. But anybody who wants to have a conversation with me, we set up about an hour. And each time I ask them totally random questions. They never see the questions ahead of time. It's really so I can get a gut check on how they're feeling. Any ideas that they have. I'm such a strong believer that the best ideas don't have to come from the business team. You know, a lot of times they come from our matchmakers that are on the ground. Mm -hmm. So it's a time for me to get to know them, for them to be transparent with me about how they're feeling. Because if I don't know, I can't make a change. Yeah. So what do you look for when you're hiring these matchmakers? What makes a good matchmaker? A great matchmaker is someone who genuinely cares about the clients. They are pretty scrappy. They're shameless. They'll go up to anyone on the street and ask if they're single. So much of our job is to kind of attack people on the streets. <laughs> so if I'm at a Whole Foods and I see a cute guy, I am making a beeline to go find out if he's single. So these matchmakers have to be shameless and really they have to be comfortable with the startup culture. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So yeah, you've fundraised, I believe, for your company so far, right? How much have you raised? Um, we've raised about $5 million in a few different rounds and all the rounds have been different. We raised from a strategic, we raised from an individual, angels and two times that I've raised, I was pregnant. Wow. So I have the worst timing ever. <laughs> Shark tank, fundraising, <laughs> just do it when you're pregnant and you'll have luck. Hopefully. <laughs> I I, it was so hard. The first time that I raised pregnant was actually our seed round. And I hid that pregnancy because I had read a blog by a prolific angel investor in LA where he said he would never invest in a pregnant CEO. So after I read that, I decided I'm going to hide my pregnancy. I'm not even going to tell my co-founder because I feared that if I walked into a room and she knew, she would lose confidence. Yeah. So I really just kept it to myself. And we closed the round. I was wearing trench coats and sweatshirts and it was 90 degrees. Oh the next time that I fundraised pregnant, actually, we had a deal that was supposed to go through and I had planned my pregnancy for you know, for after the deal went through, I'd have a specific maternity leave and the deal didn't go through. And I was three months pregnant. I thought, oh my God, here we go again. I have to fundraise pregnant. <laughs> but this time we had pretty strong metrics to back what we've been doing. I had run the company for several years. We had partnerships. I thought, this is crazy. I shouldn't have to hide my pregnancy mm -hmm. to go fundraise. 
So I decided to rock my belly and I wore tight dresses to every meeting and nobody would give me money. The only investor during that time that I was able to close, I closed over the phone because he didn't see me in person. Everybody else said, I'm super interested. Let's talk after the baby. Go have the baby and then let's regroup and we can wrap things up. And I kept saying, I have 50 babies that I take care of at the office. Right. It's not going to make any difference. Also, I had, this is my second child. Yeah. You know, I've already been done through this, this yeah. before. But still, it was so challenging to get people to commit before I had the baby. I had investors ask me to stand up and twirl around and they asked oh me a God. million questions about the baby, but they just didn't take me that seriously. So for that round, I had the baby and I really needed to wrap up fundraising. So I strapped on what they give me at the hospital. It's like to keep all your organs in. And I went out two days after giving birth and closed nine investors. And they had no idea that you had just had a baby, basically. Pretty much. And that's why they closed. Right. Well, of course, because you had traction in an amazing business. But also, it was just not, I think the visual of seeing a woman pregnant was really freaking people out. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that we have more role models out there to prove that we can do both things. Yeah. We're not mutually exclusive. We can be mothers and founders. But yeah. we're going to take, it's going to take a few more role models out yeah. there. Yeah. We need more founders like you who go out there with a, you know, their pregnant belly and say, give me money. I'm ready to go. Right. I, I yeah. always say a determined woman is unstoppable. Yeah. People just have to recognize that and move forward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Joanne Wilson is mm -hmm. a, you know, really successful angel investor. And she always talks about how women that are founders that have children, just she thinks that they get so much more done because you have such little time. Right. It's so true. Mm -hmm. You have to multitask and you really can't deal with the bullshit. Yeah. So you have a certain amount of hours during the day and you have to make sure things get done. Right. Right. That's interesting. So, well, that's amazing that you did that, by the way. And, um, really says a lot, you know, about pushing through and just doing it anyways and doing what you have to do for your business and your family and all these things mm -hmm. that we have to balance as women. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I've never, I haven't pitched to a female investor, so I don't really? actually know if that would have been a different story. You don't have any female investors? Mm -hmm. No. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the majority of mine for wear away were men, obviously. I think I had like one angel investor that was female, but, um, yeah, hopefully we get a lot more women that our angel investors and VCs. Mm -hmm. We need lots more. Agreed. I definitely have seen a change over the last few years in terms of the tech scene in LA. There are so many more women and we're really supporting each other. It makes such a huge difference. I still think we have a long ways to go, but I right. do feel pretty optimistic that we're making progress. Right. Definitely. Fundraising was clearly challenging as it always is. So I guess that would be a very challenging moment. Can you share a time when you made a mistake, right? We're all humans. We fail. We make mistakes. When was a time when you messed up and then had to learn how to hurry up and, and recover from it? Well, I think a big mistake was launching that company. It was called Let's Do, where we brought strangers together over dinner. Yeah. Because... I wasn't trusting my gut. I was really listening to what other advisors investors and investors yeah. were telling me. Yeah. And I made a bad decision. I, I should have followed what I was actually passionate about, but instead I was listening to the trends. And, right. and what I recognized in the end was that I was the expert. Right. I was the one who saw something was missing in the market. And so I should have just followed my gut. And instead I listened to everybody else. I blew my life savings. I spent six months working on this project. I didn't completely care about. So I learned a lot of lessons during yeah. that journey. That's good that you learned that early on. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, a lot of times advisors, investors think they know what's best and they'll try to push their ideas or thoughts onto things and pivots and, you know, right. it doesn't always make sense. And now I've, I learned that I mean, it's, it is such a roller coaster being an entrepreneur. It's only worth it if it's fun. Right. It's only worth it if you truly are passionate about what you're doing. Otherwise, you might as well get another job. Right. This life takes such a toll on your family life and your relationships. And 
it truly is only worth it if you love what you're doing. Yeah. So on that note, what keeps you going? What's your why? Mm -hmm. What keeps you motivated every day? I'm obsessed with matchmaking. That's why. I mean, I am too in the weeds. I know too much about every client that we have across the country because I'm obsessed. I love, love, I love helping people learn about themselves. And that is really what keeps me going. It's interesting over time, you end up doing the thing that you love less because you're running the business. So now I'm, I really enjoy managing as well, but I'm doing a lot more of the business side, which isn't really what I set out to do. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why I stay in the weeds because I just need to feed that every single day. Yeah. So what is one of the most, I guess, um, success stories that you've had, or what's one of the stories that makes you kind of look back and think, wow, I that's because of me and my team. Mm -hmm. There are so many, so many. I think the ones that excite me the most are the stories where they, they would never have found each other without us. Mm -hmm. For example, one of my success stories is I met this girl. She was very preppy from Orange County. She wore pearls. Her family really wanted her to end up with a finance guy. And when I spoke with her, I could tell she had a bit of an edge and I decided to match her with someone pretty different. He was a rocker with long hair and tattoos and they ended up getting married and then they just had a child. So I'm pretty sure without three day rule, they would never have ended up together. Right. Definitely. I mean, it sounds like you had to, how did you get that to happen? (laughs) I really called it like it is. I said, I think this guy is worth going out with, but let me tell you what's not going to happen. You're not going on fancy dinners. You're not doing, you know, this, that, and the other. But what you will get is this. And she said, you know what? I'm willing to give it a shot. And she went out and they fell in love and it worked out. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's awesome. I'm I'm pretty honest when it comes to matchmaking. (laughs) So, you know, entrepreneurship, running a company can take a toll on you emotionally and it's a lot of stress. What do you do to kind of balance the stress It's so hard, (laughs) especially with two kids. There's so little time for you, but I do find that those days where I can't take a yoga class or I can hop on the bike, it does make a huge difference. So I always look at everything like a pie where my husband gets a slice and my work gets a slice and my kids get a slice. And if I can get a little sliver for me, then my day is so much better. (laughs) That's awesome. Making time for that sliver. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you get. Yes. So you mentioned, you know, going bike riding and stuff like that. Is there a thought process or another maybe activity that helps keep you on track? Well, I will say that I really enjoy going to these female networking groups Mm -hmm. and speaking to people who are in the same position. uh, That really helps me feel grounded and I get a lot of great ideas and I, I am so grateful for the support Mm -hmm. because you don't completely understand it unless you're in it. Right. So I can't completely relate to some of the moms at the preschool, but I can completely relate to these other female CEOs. So I try to go to as many of these networking groups as possible. Really feeds my soul. Yes, I agree. Female founders. I think you actually came to um, the female founder event that I co-hosted with CrossCut Ventures. Mm-hmm. I do remember <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> it was fun. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader? I would say something that I haven't changed over the years is that I really do care about everybody on the team. And I try to be as relatable as possible and have this open door policy. Mm -hmm. The one-on-ones help a lot. I try to check in with my employees as much as possible. So in general, I think I'm like a softy and I'm a giver with a little bit of a fighter. Yeah. And I think that's what's made me, great is the right word, but made me the leader that I am today is that I also genuinely care about every single person on the team. Yeah. And making time to listen. Right. Listening is huge. Right. What's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? I guess I wish I would have known how all consuming it is, Mm -hmm. that it's really 24 seven. It's not a job that you shut off at five o'clock. You become obsessed and 
it really takes over your life. So I feel fortunate that I'm doing something that I actually truly love, but I think I would have liked to know, have known that when I left my job originally. Right. There's no real time off, even if you're on vacation. Right. <laughs> There's no exactly. vacation. There's no time off in your head. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, you know, in startups in general, do you feel like it's kind of like, I mean, it's different as a founder or CEO because you're just really wearing so many different hats and it's like you just have such a broad range of things that you're in charge of. But even just working for a company these days, I feel like is also all consuming. Mm -hmm. It's true. We tell our employees, shut down. Yeah. At a certain hour, shut your computer down. When you go on vacation, turn it off. And oftentimes they don't do it. So I think you're right that everybody sort of feels that these days. It's like this pressure because we all have cell phones that you can check your emails on. It's like we're available 24-7. There's almost no reason why you wouldn't be able to respond logistically. So then you feel this pressure to be that winning employee that I'm going to be working harder than everyone else, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. so true. But really... It's so beneficial to check out yes, and to have a fresh perspective when you come back. Right. Whether you're a founder or not, you've got to take some time out. Right. Yeah. What are some limiting beliefs you had to overcome to get to where you are today? Well, when I started with my former business partner, she was the CEO. I was never meant to be the CEO. I was meant to run the matchmaking business, but... At a certain point, she ended up leaving the company and I inherited this job. I never thought in a million years that I would be a CEO. I didn't go to business school. I really hadn't, didn't even have the desire to do it. So I learned a lot about myself and business over the last few years. Mm-hmm. But I definitely had that belief that that wasn't meant for me. Yeah. And it was kind of forced upon you a little bit. Mm-hmm. You had to adjust and kind of grow into it and figure it out. Exactly. For example, when we were doing the Founder Institute, I was so nervous public speaking. I would shake like uncontrollably. And she was amazing. She'd stand up, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you know, and I was in the background shaking. Right. So when she left and I inherited that role, I really had to practice public speaking because it was so difficult for me. I feel like everybody says that they hated public speaking. And I agree with you. I was the same way. I hated public speaking. Obviously, as a founder, you have to get over it real quick, but it's tough to get used to. It really is. I I excel in (laughs) one-on-one and not in public speaking. And it just takes practice. Definitely. It just takes practice and you get used to it. And then you're like, ah, it's no big deal. Here we go again. (laughs) So how do you work to improve yourself so that you can best lead your company? Definitely reading as many books as possible. Like the one-on-ones that I do with the company I got from the book, Finding Happiness, I think it's what it's called, Tony Shea. Okay. Yeah. I try to read as much as possible. I ask other founders for advice. Really any networking event or meeting that I have, I'm walking away with something. So I'm just trying to learn as much as possible as we grow. And having two employees is different than 50 employees. So you're always having to learn. Right. How have you grown personally as a leader? Well, I would say in many ways, I'm the same leader. When I first started, I also care deeply about everybody I'm working with. And it doesn't make a difference really as we grow. I've definitely learned to delegate. I can't do everything. I was really micromanaging on the client side. And now I've, I'm trusting my team to do it and I, they're amazing. So I've learned to delegate and really just focus on the things that are really necessary for my position. Yeah. That's a tough like adjustment to figure out, you know, how you can best fit and and help your team be the best that they can. Right. Because the truth is that I'm not making that much of a difference from my office. I really have to be out meeting people and forming partnerships. So Mm -hmm. I have to spread my wings. (laughs) Definitely. If you could change anything about your entrepreneurial journey, what would you have done differently? I would have made a really big change. I would have uh, grown at a slower pace and become profitable faster. And why? Because it was much harder to get to profitability with 10 cities than with two cities. Mm -hmm. And I think I did things backwards. So in retrospect, I would have had just a handful of cities, hit profitability, and then grown from there. 
I think it's a little bit different with our business just because it's a little more of a service plus technology business. Yeah. And so I, I would have done it in that way. Interesting. I feel like a lot of founders kind of say that, that they wish they would have taken it a little slower. Yeah. Then you're, your back's not up against the wall when you go to fundraise and right. you have more leverage. Mm-hmm. Right. Building a more like sustainable business instead of as fast as possible and breaking things along the way. Right. I mean, we wanted to grow as fast as possible and to really take over the national market. But we had a few things that happened along the way that really made it more difficult. Had I hit profit profitability early with those other sort of deals falling through, it wouldn't have been such a big blow. Yeah. And my next company and in definitely in retrospect, I would have hit profitability first. Interesting. That's awesome. And so what's something you think most people don't know about building a business? Well, I think people think it happens overnight and it really doesn't. It's just baby steps day to day. Mm -hmm. You see people hitting huge fundraising milestones or getting acquired and you get a little bummed out because you think, gosh, these people launched their company a year ago, but then you find out it was nine years ago and it's a whole journey. So I think you know, understanding that it does take a lot longer and you just have to take it day by day. Yeah. So what advice, if you were to give some last <laughs> advice to entrepreneurs out there, what would you say? I would say find something that you care very deeply about. And once you have that, do whatever it takes to make sure that it's successful. Yeah. And you're going to hit a lot of bumpy roads, but be a fighter and you will get through it. Yeah. So what's next for the company? What's, what's next on the radar for you guys? Oh, well, we just launched our 10th city. So we congratulations. Have, thank you. We have about 10 cities to go in the U S and that's where we're headed next. We'll launch Dallas and Houston, Miami, Atlanta. There are so many cities that we really should be on the ground. And where? what are the 10 cities that you're currently in now? We're in LA, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, DC, Philadelphia, Orange County, San Jose, Seattle. Wow. That's awesome. That's exciting stuff. So if you're out there and you're single, you guys know where to uh, check it out. Where can we find you? 3dayrule.com. You have to spell out T-H-R-E-E -E, and anybody can sign up for free. And the reason you have to spell out T-H-R-E-E -E is because I forgot to pay the GoDaddy subscription on the number three day rule. And now it's an 80s cover band. <laughs> <laughs> Tis the world of startups. <laughs> That's funny. Awesome. And then are you guys on social media? Yes. All of our channels are three day rule. Spelled out. Spelled out. <laughs> Unless you like 80s music. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your awesome story. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.